Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Jerry Kopak, who is a recovering cubicle dweller and someone who was following the traditional laminated American playbook. Go to college, get a house, buy the car, live your dreams, right? Well, that was Jerry, and he was doing the things, but he was finding himself unfulfilled. That unfulfillment ultimately led him to travel the world by bike. So far, he has visited five continents and 26 countries, and he's still going. So today's episode is about Jerry and his transition out of corporate America and into a lifestyle and a mindset of saying yes and where that can take you. We had a fun chat. As you know, I'm getting more interested in international bike travel myself. And so this was a great introduction into bike touring and what one might expect and some of the benefits that come along with it and and some of the challenges as well. So appreciate Jerry coming on the podcast today and sharing his story. But before we get to it, let's take a moment to thank the people that made today's episode possible, starting with our latest group of patrons. This week signing up, we have Kevin Lee with Spinistry and Zach Ramsey. Also, the following patron increased their pledge, so we'd like to thank Matthew Wells for increasing his monthly pledge. And if you appreciate the work over here at Bikes for Death and would like to see these episodes continue to populate into your podcasting feed on a regular basis, consider helping us produce this show over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. All right, well, you may be aware that I'm about to do an ITT of the East Texas Showdown. That's the 400-mile route that I created and we host a race on. The race is coming up here in a few weeks, but I am going to be doing an ITT of the new 400-mile course here in two days. I'm taking off on Friday morning. I'm going to be posting a tracker link to my social media, so if you'd like to follow along, uh, you can do that, and I'll try to share some stuff on social media as I go. But guess what I'll be taking with me? A couple items. Uh, One item is going to be my athletic greens. Uh, That's right. I'm going to take it with me because I'm going to need all the help I can get. And if you've been wondering why you should try AG1, here are just a few reasons. It's made with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients. You get comprehensive nutrition in one simple scoop. Build a healthy daily habit in one minute a day. It promotes gut health, supports immunity, boosts energy, and more. All that in one delicious scoop of AG1. Just mix it into your water and drink it down, and you have health and wellness on the go. So I'm going to be definitely taking that with me. Uh, I'm going to be putting my body through the paces, and I'm sure it'll appreciate any extra nutrients I can send it along the way. If you would like to try Athletic Greens, they are making it easy for you. With a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and a free travel pack with your first purchase. To find out more, head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash bikes or death. You know what else I'm taking with me on the East Texas Showdown are my Ombras. 
Again, I mentioned it in another episode, but easily they're one of my favorite pieces of bikepacking gear. I love the lanyard. I love how you can just hang it around your neck. And so I intend to be riding from day to night to night into day. And I've always found that whenever you're doing this type of riding, that finding a place for your sunglasses in your bag where they won't get jostled around and where they won't get scratched and potentially broken or damaged in any way. I really like with the Ombras, you can just hang them around your neck during nighttime. And whenever the sun starts coming up, they're right there. You know where they are out of the way and ready to go back on your face. So those are the two pieces of gear I'm taking with me on the East Texas Showdown. If you'd like to try Ombras, they are also making it easy on you. They gave us a code. It's a secret one and it's special. And it gives you $20 off every time you buy a pair of Ombras. And Ombras will send me a $20 bill as well as a thank you. To take advantage of that offer, just use the code BOD20 at checkout. And that is at ombras.com, which is O-M-B-R-A-Z.com. And again, use the code BOD20 at checkout to get $20 off a pair of Umbras for yourself and send $20 to your favorite podcast. And one note about today's episode, if you would prefer to watch today's episode, you can do so over at our YouTube channel. I think it's www.youtube.com forward slash bikes or death. If you go into their search engine and Google bikes or death, I bet you can find it. All right, ching ching bills have been paid. And now it is time to get to today's episode with Jerry Kopak. But first, let's have my friend Miles Arbor kick it off with the bikes or death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Look at you. You got the uh, professional setup and everything. You're ready to go. I know, man. Like I, uh, I, I didn't want to let you down. I know you got a, a really great show with a lot of listeners and I wanted to show up for you. <laughs> Don't tell me you bought that microphone just for this show. I have to think that you already had it. I did already have it. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of other uh, interviews and other hosting stuff as well on the other side of the table. So I have had it yeah. for a bit. That's awesome. What are you hosting? Do you have your own podcast or... I don't actually. So if you're familiar with Warm Showers, the international bikepacking hosting organization. So we have a podcast called Bike Life, where we interview people who are traveling. They tell us their stories. And I've been doing some hosting on that. So the the main Mm -hmm. host, she's been, her name is Taberly. She does the main main interviews. But uh, I've been jumping in and giving her a break, kind of like, uh, I don't know, NPR... Terry Gross to Dave Davies with uh, with fresh air kind of thing. That's awesome. So if yeah. I ever need a uh, a substitute host, you're you just I just call you and you show up. Ah, uh, yeah, man. But you're a big personality. There's some big shoes to fill. So we'll see. 
<laughs> I'm not that big of a personality. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, mean. we would we would probably love to have you on our show at some point soon too. You definitely have a lot of stories. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, man. That's cool. Is that what you do for a living now? Is uh, work at war- warm showers, or you said you were working today? So I know you got some kind of job. Yeah, so I do a lot of things now. I'm kind of like this jack of many trades. So today or during the winter season, I actually teach and coach cross country skiing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do some some financial work for warm showers. I sit on their board of directors. I oversee all of our financials. That's been a lot of fun. Been doing that for a couple of years. Guide some bike tours in the summertime, and yeah, connect with people like you. Just a little bit of everything, huh? Yeah, man. It keeps a little, it keeps it fresh. I was, I was a corporate guy for a long time, working 40, 50, 60 hours a week in a cube. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I think a lot of people just deem as life. And this is what we do. This is normal. And I did that for a long time. And then I had a couple of things change in my life. And now I had the opportunity to do this. And it's, it definitely feeds my soul a whole lot more. Yeah. I get that. I, um, I've been in real estate for like, 14 years. I, my license just expired last month actually. And, uh, I'm kind of jumping off a ledge with bikes or death and, and just doing this full time and, and seeing how that goes. But I've actually been reflecting on it the last couple of days. Cause I got a trip to Costa Rica for work planned and one to West Virginia and, um, Santa Fe and Phoenix, Arizona. And I don't know all, you know, and all these opportunities are, are popping up and I'm just kind of going wherever, you know, wherever the road leads. And I feel really, uh, fortunate, you know, to be, and I'm trying to like soak, soak this in because, you know, most of my life I've just kind of worked a normal job like most people. And I, I'm getting to do something much outside the mainstream and, uh, I'm trying to work at it very hard and, and enjoy it all at the same time, you know, which I think I'm not very good at enjoying things when they're happening, you know? And so, uh, this is one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is cool. You need to, you know, enjoy it. Like stop and smell the roses a little bit from time to time. Pick your head up and look around. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Life is so damn short, man. Like if you pick your head up, you'll notice that awesome things are happening and if you can travel or live life with this mentality to always say yes, which for me is really hard because I am this historically like this tightly wound type A control freak. And it's so easy to just say no to things because saying no gives you control. Yeah. You start saying nice, start, start saying yes to things. It opens this up to possibilities. And man, it's scary at first, but like you're experiencing now, things are happening, man. And you're going places. So that's, that's a really cool feeling. <clears throat> your tagline is so on the money for me. You have no idea. Um, your tagline, mine is, I just always say, just say yes, or, or always say yes is basically the same yeah. thing. But yeah, I s- developed that mantra when my dad died of cancer at 57 oh, and geez. he, you know, he just worked his whole life. He, he was one of the w- most hardest working people I knew. He threw two paper outs every morning. We'd get up at four, four o'clock in the morning, 365 days, year, you know, a year, throw a paper out. Then he put himself through, uh, then he would work like a normal job. Then in the evenings, he put himself through like a master's and a doctorate program at Texas A&M. Then he became a professor and he, uh, which was his dream job. And a year after he became a professor, he died of cancer. And 
you know, it's cool. Like it, it really was like a, a good example to me of the value of, of working hard and accomplishing your, your dreams. But at the same time, it's like all he did was work, you know, and I found that I was in a situation in my life where I was just working a lot and I was saying no to a lot of things. And I made a, that was like 12 or 13 years ago. And I made a clear and conscious decision to say yes, you know, to life, whatever opportunities, someone has a crazy idea, not too crazy, but you know, (laughs) moderately crazy idea, Uh, nothing that would land you in jail. Uh, I say yes, you know, and that's been, that's been a guiding principle. And that guiding principle has led me exactly to where I am today. Um, So I'm, I'm actually, I'm pretty excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. uh, But I think that we have some commonality in, in at least that, you know, is saying yes to life. And when you're open to life and saying yes, where does life lead you, you know, and, and that some of the best things that's ever happened in my life have come through that, that, that saying yes. And it's not according to a plan, a business plan, a life goal. It's just like, I'm just going with the flow, man, and seeing where this thing will go, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's, at least for me, there's that inherent fear when you say yes, like, man, that makes you vulnerable because you don't know what's going to happen to you. Because again, it's so easy to say no and keep control. But when you start opening yourself up to to vulnerability, man, that is, that's, that's stressful sometimes. But once you realize like, okay, things are going to happen and it's either going to work out or not. It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever watched this this film, probably in the 90s. I'm, I'm kind of a movie geek. I grew up in Michigan. So in the wintertime, we didn't have much to do. But there was this <laughs> film years ago called Sliding Doors, and it had Uma Thurman in, I think. Very familiar. With, I've referenced that on the last episode with Ultra Romance, uh, Sliding okay. Doors. I referenced that. So very yeah, topical. Yeah, it wasn't with Thurman. Sorry, it was Gwyneth Paltrow, right? And That's so right. Sliding Doors, right? So the, the premise is she either makes the train after work or she misses it and her life goes in two very different directions. And I don't, I'm not one of those guys who thinks that there's this master plan for everybody that our life is predestined. I think things happen to people, bad things happen to good people, plenty of good things happen to really bad people too, unfortunately, but it's how do we deal with that adversity, right? So what decisions do we make? How do we pick ourselves up once we get knocked down? And so I always think about that as far as the sliding door stuff, like, all right, this didn't go the way I thought of. How am I going to deal with it now? What are my choices? I can't control what happens to me. I can control with how I respond to it. And I don't know. It's funny that you brought that up already on your other show. I just (laughs) mentioned that on the episode with Ronnie Romance. I just said uh, sliding doors as a reference to that movie. Uh, But I actually really like that movie as well. And um, I... I mean, life, like you said, is going to have ups and downs. And I talk about this on the podcast and I relate it to bike packing or bike touring that, you yeah. know, there's going to be mechanical failures. There's going to be wrong turns along the way. It's going to rain, you know, things, things do go wrong, but, but those aren't the things in bike trips or in life that you should focus on. It's like, and, and even failure is a great opportunity to learn. And so next time you're in a situation like that, you, you've already been there. So now you have that experience in your tool shed that you can learn from and lean on and grow from. And all that does is end up 
making you a more robust person, a more capable person. And so, yeah, I really, there's a, a major, you know, shift in perspective. And if you can accomplish that, I think it, it frees you up because you don't look at things as like, oh shit, this went bad, bad, bad. <laughs> and now everything's ruined. No, right. this is just, a, this is a moment in time. And, and we're all going to have moments in time that are hard, but we also have peaks, you know, with all the valleys, there's also peaks and yeah. you just kind of have to take life. I don't know, in stride. And I think that, mindset lends itself a little bit more easy to my personality than maybe it does for others who need rigidity and need structure and, and, you know, need a plan. I like a plan. Don't get me wrong, but I can also (laughs) kind of, I can kind of lean into that side, which I know not everybody can do so well. Um, I think, though, for the purpose of our conversation, we should probably uh, let's get some background on you. And, and, um, you know, you've been to just for the listening audience. uh, Jerry here has been to five continents and 26 countries by bike. Um, So you've been all over the world uh, exploring, meeting people and on some crazy adventures. But I think your story of how you got there um, is probably worth filling in the blanks uh, because I think a lot of people are probably just stuck in jobs they don't love or they think that corporate America or working a nine to five is the only path forward. And I think it's sure. really valuable to show it's not the only option and and highlight, you know, some other options and other ways to, to move forward. So, um, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about your your career path and your life before you got into cycling um, to fill in some blanks? Yeah. So for the record, I've always been into cycling. When I was Good. four years old, growing up in Michigan, riding rural dirt roads, like just love bikes, the sense of freedom, the sense of exploration. I mean, obviously, you know this, the people who listen to your show know this, the magic of bikes. But honestly... I'm just a guy in my 40s. Actually, I just turned 49 a few weeks ago, which is oh, a wow. crazy thing to say out loud. You look I am, so good. I, <laughs> I just turned, uh, when's your birthday? February 2nd, so Groundhog Day. Mine's February 5th. Nice, man. That's yeah. awesome. I just and turned so, 43. Uh, okay. So I pegged us for a similar age. You look great, man. You're in great Thank shape. Thank you. Uh, great jeans. My mom has great jeans. My dad's got this whole full wavy head of brown hair and I got the stuff from my mom's side. So (laughs) they always blame your mom's side, right? Your mom's father or something like that. But yeah, so I'm sort of clinging precariously to my forties right now. I've got like 11 and a half more months to go to sort of really suck all the juice and life out of my forties. And it's, it's been good so far, good, but other good. than that, like, I'm just a guy in my forties who grew up in middle America. I grew up in this small town called Eaton Rapids. It's probably 20 minutes South of Lansing, Michigan. And honestly, if you did a Google search for middle America, this town might just come up. It's just, it's a small town of 5,000 people. There's a quaint little downtown. There's a river that runs through a little Island. And when we were kids, we would go and buy a cheap loaf of bread and feed the ducks on the island. And so great place to grow up from. But I was sort of following this laminated roadmap to success that society tells us, right? So you graduate from high school, you go to college, you get the good job, you meet the girl, you buy the house, and you just keep working your way through that. And that was all fine and dandy, except I just didn't love what I was doing. Like I was working in cubicles, 
and I had a job, went to business school. So I had a degree in finance and I was working in, in different corporate roles and I wasn't unique in that, right? That was just kind of the approach. We all take these jobs that we don't love, but who cares? You don't love them. That's just what you do. It's how you work your way up. You work a few more hours, you get a promotion, you get a few more dollars. And by the time you're 60 or 65, you can finally step aside and start living your best life. It wasn't until the ripe old age of 31, after nearly 10 years in this corporate job, that my mom called me. We were both living in Boulder, Colorado at the time, which she moved there in the 80s. I moved there after high school. My parents got divorced. It's a long story. It's not a bad story. It's just a story. <laughs> so went to college in Boulder and working these corporate jobs. And my mom calls me. And it wasn't unlike her to call me, but she called me from her holiday trip to Mexico. And so I said, hey, mom, what's up? And she's like, Jerry, listen to me. I know what I want to do. I want to start a hospice in Boulder. And here I am, this 31-year-old, kind of cocky, kind of snarky, smart-alecky, thinking to myself, you know, because I'm following this, this playbook to success. I'm climbing the corporate ladder, doing okay in life. And I think to myself, like, hmm. So I say to my mom, I don't know that I want to start a weird hotel that caters to transient backpackers. She says, what? So no, 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 no. That's a hostel. I'm talking about a hospice. It's like, what the heck is a hospice? <laughs> I'm seriously, like I'm 31 years old. I have no idea about death and dying and caring for people at the end of life. But I can just hear the excitement and the passion like seeping through the phone all the way from Mexico. So we come, she comes back, we start talking and her passion slowly becomes my passion. And probably four five, six months later, we started a hospice in Colorado, which became the most pivotal consequential thing I've ever done in my life. What made your mom want to start a hospice? Like, where does that come from? Because I assume she's retired or close to retirement and she just gets this wild hair to start a <laughs> start a hospice. Like, Yeah, she was she was probably almost 60, uh, maybe 60. And she was actually managing an independent living facility in, in Boulder. And all it simply means it's it's non-medical care. It's people can of a certain age, 65 or older, can go live in this apartment complex. And she was managing that. But she was down in Mexico with her husband, and she met this couple from Louisiana who changed her life. And she asked them, what do they do? And they said, well, we run a hospice in New Orleans. And so they started talking. It got her excited the same way it got me excited. And she came back and that's how it happened. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah. uh, that's another, I, I, I'm similarity. I didn't know much about hospice until my dad was in hospice. And okay. uh, so that would have been about similar to you. My, I was like 31 uh, when that happened, when I first learned about hospice, but it was a different, different way. I like your way better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. But I, I did gain a, a real life appreciation and perspective for what hospice is and, and what they do. Cause you hear, you hear hospice, you know, um, but you don't really have a full picture of what that is. And so for anyone else who's like me and, and like you at the time, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what actually y'all did as a hospice care facility or business or however you, however yeah. that was. So our organization, our goal was to keep people out of facilities, keep people out of the hospital. So 
they could spend the last days, months, whatever weeks of their time at home where they're comfortable, where they're most familiar. So our staff would be a physician, a nurse, a nurse's aide, a social worker, and a spiritual coordinator, a chaplain. They would all spend time, regular visits to that person's home, providing care, providing guidance to the family, and keeping that person comfortable at their home during their their final time. So we had this I would have people who would say to me, it's like, hey, you're 31, you're 33, you're 34, whatever my age was. Like, wow, that must be really hard. How did someone your age get into hospice? And it must be really stressful. And it it could have been, and I'm sure there are a lot of times that were, but we had this motto around our office simply stating that every day is an opportunity to improve someone's life. And no point, not for a single second to any of my jobs, in a bank or in telecom ever given the opportunity to make that statement. So mm-hmm. with that mindset, it it definitely made things ring true. Like, okay, I'm on the right path. Here. I'm where I'm supposed to be. What was, um, what was your personal feeling towards, you know, corporate America and this, what did you say? A la- laminated roadmap that you were, that you were on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were, you know, at 30, 31, were you feeling, uh, underwhelmed by that? Like what, what made you actually be open to the idea of, of doing this career shift with your mom? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, again, I didn't know any better. So Western society, American society tells us like, Hey, this is the path we choose. We go and work our butts off 20, 30, 40 years to start living your best life. And I was doing that. Right. So I was, I was getting ahead and I was making some small minimal gains year over year but it definitely wasn't feeding my soul. It wasn't like if I work five more hours at this telecom job or in this bank, is it going to matter anybody? And the answer is unequivocally no. And so talking to her, meeting her friends down in New Orleans, taking a flight down there because I'm the kind of guy who needs to know all the answers before I make a decision like this. So I went down there and met her friends, met all their staff, did a business model and just fully understood what this looks like. I'm like, okay, I think this can work. And to be fair, I still wasn't looking at this as my new career pivot, my new direction. I was still pretty happy following this, this playbook here, what I was on. And it wasn't until honestly, I got laid off from the job I was in that I thought, wow, okay, what should I do differently? And so there's this this Jim Carrey commencement speech where he talks about his dad and his dad getting laid off from some accounting job. And his dad was just following this playbook. And he talks about if you can get laid off or let go from something you don't love, why not take a chance on something that you actually do? And wow. I, man, it just it just drilled me like resonation times 10. It's like, yes, I don't love what I'm doing. And I got laid off through no fault of my own. It's just, that's how the industry worked at the time. It's like, you know what? I'm going to take a flyer here and do the startup company with my mom. We'll see how that goes. And it's been the best thing I've ever done in my life. I have to, I'm going to make an assumption here that when you were looking, I mean, you're a finance guy, you're looking at the books. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that, 
a big part of it was, well, I don't know, you fill me in here, but like, <laughs> were you looking at it more as like a business opportunity uh, and from like a business aspect or were you looking at it more as um, I can do something that provides value or did you see it as potentially satiating both of those things? Uh, the answer is C, potentially satiating both. So I had just bought a house, my first house in, in Boulder when I was 31. So I, I definitely had bills to pay. So I couldn't just go and work for free because that's just now how life works. So I did do <laughs> I some... <wish. laughs> yeah, right. So if we can all just work for the good of humanity and the rest will follow, but that's that's great. And sometimes that works, but in this situation, it wasn't necessarily how it laid out. So I did need to make sure that I could cover my expenses. And if I could get anywhere near what I was making in a corporate job and do something that mattered, then what are we talking about? Like, yeah, yeah. game over. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that it, the reason I started the podcast was because real estate my listeners will be familiar for me has been kind of soul sucking. You know, you're helping uh -huh. people with the most, I mean, you understand finance, but you're dealing with people's money. And when you're dealing with people's money, it's usually not a pleasant conversation. Most of the time people are trying no. to one up someone or screw someone over or figure <laughs> out how they can make more money or whatever it is. And, it just wore on me, you know, that whole sure, man. just transactional way of dealing with the world uh, really weighed on me. And I was like, I just started the podcast simply as a way to do something that felt good. I was like, what can I do where I feel like I'm contributing something good into the world that, you know, makes me feel a little bit better about being me? Because like you, I still have to pay my bills. I've I've got two daughters and uh, got to provide for them. And so making money is, is, yeah, it's just the way of the world, obviously. I don't think we even have to illustrate that. So, it, but it is like, I, I really um, connect with that idea and that feeling of emptiness from the job that you're doing and, and looking for something more impactful to do that just makes you feel good. It's like, yeah, you got so many... Uh, so much time on this earth and are you going to waste it and spend it on a job and a career path that is unfulfilling every single day? Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, this quote that I came across, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I'll just kind of summarize it for you. It's every person has a time bank and each day, 86,400 seconds are deposited into this bank. No one will tell you how to use it. Time misspent won't be refunded. At some point, you'll go to your time bank and find that it's empty. And it's at that point, you'll know the answer to this question. Did I use my time well? And that just resonated with me so much. After running a hospice, you think, man, it's really easy to say that some of our patients would be 90, 95 years old. Maybe they're World War II veterans or whatever. And you get to know them and you meet them and they have these amazing stories. And eventually they, they do unfortunately pass away and it's tragic, but somehow I can make sense of it in my own mind. Like, okay, they were 95 years old. They had a long life. I'd like to believe they had a really good and fulfilled life, but it isn't until someone for me, I had a good friend pass away of breast cancer at 45 for you with your dad. You realize that man, tomorrow's not promised. So quit, quit screwing around. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective to have <clears throat> because 
we do have an obligation to our our finances and being a citizen of the world to you know hold yep. a job. Um, yeah. But I think we can agree that. Um, but living your life to the fullest has a lot of value. And I think, you know, for me, I'm always trying to make that balance is how can I make sure that, you know, I'm not like my dad in 57. It's like, all I did is work. I want to, you know, if, if I kick the bucket at 57, I want to be able to have a couple, couple good stories to tell along the way, but yeah. it doesn't mean you can shirk all the, uh, the responsibilities no. that, that you have in life, obviously. And I think, yeah, that can be, that can be part of the balance, at least for me. Yeah, and not everyone can just take off and go on a six-month or two-year bike tour. Like people have responsibilities, they have obligations, they have spouses, families, jobs, mortgages to pay. But maybe it's just sort of finding beauty in the, the day-to-day. Maybe it's going for a bike ride after work. Maybe it's doing an overnight or bike packing trip or a weekend-long trip or I don't know, going for a hike or just throwing stones on your favorite lake behind your house. Like something that. Yeah you find fulfillment in something that grounds you and provides inspiration. Maybe it's just sitting in a chair, drinking a beer and reading your favorite book. Who knows? Yeah. I think all those things are great. And uh, <laughs> for most of it, it's, it's going to be, you know, it's ebbs and flows. Like there's times in life when you'll be able to take a, a vacation and there's times in life where maybe the best you can do is go on your back porch and read a book and watch the sunset. You know I mean? Uh, that's just kind of, but, but I think finding value in, in your life and maximizing, and that's kind of the fun mystery, at least I, I think like we're all different. And so I think, you know, for me, I'm always like trying different things. I'm like, do I like that? Do I not like that? You know, yeah. and, uh, it's like, you know, it's a process, but it, that's part of saying yes is when you're saying yes, you're exposing yourself to a lot more opportunities and you're getting to learn more about yourself. You're like, oh, I like that. I didn't think that I would, or yeah, I, I didn't like that. You know, I don't know if that makes <laughs> sense, but, uh, you said, uh, that, the hospice, uh, doing that business was, I think the most important decision you ever made in your life. I don't want to misquote you, but no, spot um, on. what was that? What was it about that experience that was so pivotal, pivotal for you? You know, part of it was getting the opportunity to work with my mom. So I didn't grow up with her. I grew up with my dad in Michigan and I would see my mom periodically throughout the year. So whether it be spring break, Christmas break, sometime during the summer, but we didn't really grow up together. So we had this opportunity to spend every day with my mom. And I'm not going to say every day is easy because working with your mom or your dad or whoever, it's it's going to have its challenges, right? So one of our challenges was she she wanted to view the hospice as this really grassroots organization. And that's great. But eventually, as we started to grow, we had to have a little bit more structure, a little more business acumen. So my mom is this wildly creative person. I never in a million years would have come up with the idea of starting a hospice. But once I got involved in it, once I found the passion that she had, my business training, my background, we became a really great match. So that was one of the driving factors. And the second was going back to what I said before, like every day is this opportunity to improve someone's life. I just didn't get to do that working for, say, the Federal Reserve Bank in Denver, Colorado. And mind you, I went to school for business. So I have a finance degree. And I thought, wow, what's the highest bank in the land to work for? Well, it's the Federal Reserve. So that's where I had my sights targeted on. So when I got that job, I thought like, wow, this is I've made it. And I remember after one year with the Federal Reserve, and I'm hating this job. Right? Like I am 
I'm absolutely miserable. So my first role out of college was, remember the, uh, the Y2K perceived uh, crisis where yeah. the world's going to end and the computer's rolled to zero and everyone loses all their money and their savings. So my job was to try to forecast... Party like it's 1990, December 31st, 1999. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> and so my job was to forecast how much money we need to keep in our vaults because the role of the Federal Reserve Bank is essentially the bank of the banks. So when people go and freak out and want to take out all their money, well all their money doesn't live in vaults. So when people want to take all their money out, it basically causes the bank to fail. So my job was to forecast how many people were going to freak out and want to take all their money out. Therefore, how much money do we need to keep in our vaults to keep the monetary supply flowing so that the entire world doesn't crash? It sounds cool, but it really wasn't that cool of a job. <laughs> so I remember on my one-year anniversary with the company, I'm talking to my boss, nice guy, but you know, a typical stiff guy who worked there. And he's like, hey, so let's talk about your accomplishments for the year and your goals for the next year. And I'm thinking to myself, crap, what are my goals next year? Like, I don't want to be here. So I start <laughs> faking something like, hey, I want to work on this and so-and-so. He's like, let me stop you right there. We don't think this is the right place for you. I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm supposed to be breaking up with you and you totally <laughs> broke up with me. And so that was just kind of the, the, the beginning of the foreshadowing of like, I am not right for this place. And well, so at least I, if they break up with you, you get like a severance and unemployment or something, you know? Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I probably got two or three <laughs> weeks, but I've only been there a year and I was whatever, 23 years old, 24 years old. So I was a kid. What did I know? So yeah. I got a couple of weeks of free money and then just transitioned to my next corporate job and kind of went through certain phase. I didn't get can from my next couple of jobs, but I definitely wasn't, I definitely wasn't loving life. And so this opportunity to start this hospice with my mom and do something that was really impactful in the world and in people's lives. Like, yeah, how do I sign up for this? This sounds incredible. So yeah. long story long. I like it. Uh, this isn't a short <laughs> podcast, so you're, you can let it breathe if you want to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I've I've become such a stickler for the metric of time, and I I don't think anyone will really argue this, but time is our most precious asset. It is the one thing, you know, that we cannot make more of. It's a limited supply. We don't even know how much we have of it, and and so I like to be a I I try to be a very very good steward of of my time, you know. And I it makes a lot of sense with you being a, a fan, finance guy. I assume you look at it like it's <laughs> almost like a math problem, you know. It's like all right, I I do do some cost benefit analysis a lot, so <laughs> yeah. very much analysis paralysis. I said I was type A before. I'm a little bit type A minus now, so I'm relaxing a little bit. Wow, look at you. <laughs> exactly. And I, someone told me this, this metaphor years ago, and I, I love it. And it's basically says, we don't go to the concert just to hear the encore. And what that means is we want to hear the show in its entirety. So if you're going into this with tunnel vision, like I'm going to put my head down, tuck my chin, work till I'm 60, 65, and then start living my best life. Well, you may not get that chance, as we both know. And so you better start enjoying life along the way. Yeah, exactly. So what was it about working at a hospice? Um, how did that help inform and, and help like maybe define your understanding of time and the value that it has? 
Yeah, it's just that interaction with patients. And admittedly so, I'm a finance guy, so my job was anything non-clinical. So we had uh, a physician on staff, we had nurses, we had all the clinical staff. So my role wasn't really direct patient care, but I did get to interact with them on more of a volunteer basis. So there were times when... I would get a call and there'd be someone who was in a nursing home and her, she was starting to decline, but there wasn't any family to go be with her because she just didn't have any, or maybe didn't have any friends at that point in that person's life. And so I had the opportunity to go and sit with that person at their bedside, hold their hands, put a, a damp cloth over their forehead when nobody else was there. And so there were plenty of times when I was in a corporate role where I would work crazy hours till midnight, work on a Sunday, doing all these things, trying to get the attention of your boss. And it didn't matter. Like it was, it was soulless work. It was pointless work. No matter how many weekends I worked at my corporate jobs, it didn't matter. But these late nights, these weekends, like these things mattered. And so the people who I met along the way, and then are also our caregivers, our nurses, our physician, our CNAs, like they have this, what my mom would call this hospice heart, where it's just truly genuine and caring and open and empathetic. And honestly, growing up as a, as a business guy, I didn't possess those, I didn't possess those genes, hmm. but somehow I, I got a, I got a, a, a transfusion of some sort because I became this guy, I became more open-minded. I started reading like Brene Brown books and like crazy stuff like that. So I don't even it know. Just, it's Renee Brown or Brene Brown? Renee Brown. Yeah. She's a, she's a social worker, I think down in your hood, down in Texas. Oh, and really? she talks a lot about empathy and vulnerability and how fear drives behavior. And it's, it's fascinating stuff without getting like too soft uh, and woo woo on you, but it's, it's good nah. stuff. That's interesting. The girl I'm dating is uh, a social worker in an ER. And so um, through conversations with her, we have, a, I mean, she sees death and, and sadness every day, you know, suicide and car wrecks. And she's dealing Oof. with end of life stuff every day, multiple times a day. And so um, it really does impress me. The first time I met her, I asked her, I was like, what did, what did you learn about, what have you learned? What's the main thing you've learned about uh, people through your job? And she said that people is, are fragile. All of us are fragile. Yeah. And I thought, I felt like that was really profound. And, and if you look at it in that way, like none of us are above a car wreck or cancer or you know, bad things happening in life that, that lead us down a path of drug use or, you know, abuse of one kind or another, you know, I mean, we're all just people and we're very subject and susceptible to our environments. And, um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's in that same vein of just, yeah, being, well, you were saying that like you gain like a greater perspective of like empathy and stuff through that. And I think that when you deal with people on that level. I, I'm not dealing with it directly, but, um, I, through like secondhand, I think I've kind of gained a more appreciation for the value of life and, and, uh, yeah, just the value of life and people and, and this hard and crazy life that we live in and 
just trying to figure out a way to make it make it work and enjoy it along the way to the mo- as much as possible because life is fragile and life is uh, yeah. short, you know. And so we really do need to soak it up and maximize whatever we have. Man, it's getting dark. Is it getting dark in here? or Is it just me? <laughs> <laughs> no, man. We, we put a positive spin on this. Yeah. Because the takeaway is, is that man, life is short, <laughs> and let's just for the heck of it, like for, do what makes you happy, right? So. Because you yeah. may not get a chance later in life, so live now. Thanks, basically thanks for away. saving the thanks for saving <laughs> the podcast. We were about to. I was at. I have to. I got tissues down here. I was about to, here we go. <laughs> Pull those out. I usually like to make my guests cry. I'm not. I, I'm not supposed to cry. It's a guest that is. I'm an emotional uh, guy, so man, you got time. Are you? You went from business guy to yeah. uh, full empathy. Yeah, uh, we, we have a lot in common. I uh, yeah, I grew up only thinking business, 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 business. That's all yeah. I want to do: make money, yeah, be sure. successful, Same. make the millions. That's all I cared about, and not yeah. super emotional. And yeah, just as I've gotten a lot older, I'm a lot more empathetic, a lot more caring. I'm not the most uh, emotional person there ever was, but I like every once in a while I'll cry, which I think for me is like a good thing. You know, just yeah. being able to express emotion, you know, like not like a robot. But so for the record, as emotional as I might be, I'm still a very sarcastic, sharp-tongued kind of guy. So my partner, we've been dating for two years now, and she is the kindest, sweetest, most empathetic person. She's from Minnesota. She introduced me to this term called Minnesota nice. And she is definitely that. And we started dating and she's like, Oh, like what? Like what you said is, is really jarring. I was like, come on. Like I'm the nicest guy, you know, it's just, I'm a bit sarcastic. So don't think I'm going to just break down into tears just yet. Cause I'm still going to be that guy who's going to give you a little zinger if you're not paying attention. But for me, but for me personally, what I've, what I've found and what's been pointed out to me is that I'm the most sarcastic and the most pokey with the people who I really like. So if yeah. I'm not kind of jabbing with you, probably means either I don't like you or I just don't put much thought into you. Dude, so. I'm the exact I'm the <laughs> same way. I'm very sarcastic. I've actually yeah. had to, I have to tone it back sometimes because I've, I've actually, I had a boss many, many years ago straight up tell me, it's like, dude, we can't tell if you're joking or if yes. you're serious. Like, you know, and he's like, you, you know, people aren't like sure what to make of you. This was like back when I was like 20, uh, but it always stuck with me. And I was like, okay, yeah, we got to be mindful of how we're treating yeah. people. I don't, I, cause I don't want to be an asshole to anyone, but I will joke around uh, with people. And yeah, that's uh, just, just my nature. I can take it. I promise you, I can take it. <laughs> I'm not from Minnesota. Can. <laughs> I uh, I had a girlfriend probably in my mid to late 20s who we just didn't jive. Like she was a great person, I'm a good person. We just weren't right together. And we were break we were, as we were breaking up, she just said to me it's like half the time I can't tell if you're joking. I was like, "Come on. Like I am a super nice guy. I grew up in rural farm town Michigan. My my dad's this big teddy bear. My mom's this loving person. Like I'm a really nice and thoughtful guy. I'm just sarcastic. And she's like, yeah, I just can't tell. I'm like, all right, well, so either we, we go the next 40 years of our life with you being offended and me apologizing, or you find someone who gets your humor. And honestly, my partner, Christy now, like, even though she said like, wow, you're kind of jarring and kind of prickly. Like she gets it. Like she is sarcastic. Now she does. She she had a, a Division One hockey scholarship to play in North Dakota, so she's she's ultra competitive and she's punchy as well. So I think nice. I found someone who who gets me. 
Good. My uh, my experience with Minnesotans is that they are very nice. Yes. Uh, so I think I think she's on poor uh, on par for this state. I I did read an article recently that for the I can't remember the umpteenth time in a row Minnesota was uh, ranked the drunkest state in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Wisconsin actually. Oh, what? Yes, I get those mixed I've up. Yeah, sorry, Minnesota. Madison. Yeah, sorry, Minnesota. It is Wisconsin. Minnesota's Congratulations, nice. you yeah. win. <laughs> They're nice. They got ten thousand lakes, and people in Wisconsin drink a lot. So yes, they do. There's the parody there. Dude, that's my dyslexia right there. I got those t- and and poor <laughs> geography skills. I got those mixed up because I went to Wisconsin uh, this past year okay. to cover a bike race. And dude, yeah, they uh, nice, super nice people. Like they treated sure. me so good. I was like, do y'all think I'm royalty or something? You know, like this is too much. You know, I thought Texans were nice, but y'all are like yeah. making us look bad. I noted that and they like to drink. They, they do. And I like to drink too. So, you know, we got along just yeah. fine. I was nice. They were nice. We all drank. It was a good, good time. Ride bikes, drink some beer. Yeah, it's all good. Hey, you can't beat that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's segue into some bike stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, let what was that transition for you? Like, um, how did this perspective of time and life and value transition into you ultimately doing all this these bike trips? Yeah. So again, I was sort of following this 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 playbook right and then like most people like many people sometimes life happens and life happened to me when i turned i think 40 or 41 so had a bunch of curveballs kind of sucker punch me and it definitely knocked me off my access and i was presented with this this what i would call this gift of time right so people talk about what would you do if you knew you could not fail and honestly i don't really subscribe to that because i i think that Fear, if it's harnessed, becomes a very potent and strong engine for success. It drives people. But me, I was working with people end of life and in hospice. Time is a very potent element, and it's very much on the the, the forefront of my of my vision. And so I found myself without a partner. The girl who I thought I was going to marry didn't work out. Uh, I had stepped away from the hospice. Things just became challenging with work. Uh, my mom also turned 70. She wanted to retire. And as I mentioned, a really close friend died at 45. So these these three things happened to me all within probably two or three months. And so I kind of found myself in a bit of a tailspin. And so I thought, well, what do I know that always sort of brings me back? And it's it's bikes. And I'd done a few bike tours before, one week at a time, because honestly... That's all that my my jobs would ever allow is one week at a time, maybe 10 days. And so I thought, okay, for the first time in my life, I don't really have any anchors. And so I thought, I'm just going to go down to Africa where I have a friend who was working down there from high school. He was working for the CDC. And he said, hey, why don't you come down? And this would have been May of 2016. And so I thought, okay, cool. I'm just going to head down to, to Zambia where he was with his family. I'm going to ride around, do a little bike tour for two weeks. That'll be long enough for me to sort of get my feet back on the ground and do a reset. And from there, I met someone and said, hey, you should go to Zimbabwe. I thought, okay, if I'm living my life with this mindset of always say yes, then yeah, I should go to Zimbabwe. From there, I went to Botswana. From there, I met someone else who says, you should go to Madagascar. I'm like, okay, cool. Did all those things. 
And at that point, I was like, okay, I've been gone for about a month now, which is an incredibly long amount of time. I've never been off work or had a holiday for that long. And I'm in the airport in Madagascar. I meet this professor. She's from India. And she's. I'm telling her my story. And she said, hey, if you liked bike traveling and you weren't afraid, then you should go to India and go to the Himalayas. I thought, you're right. I should go to India. And so I concocted this route. So it's this would have been, again, 2016. This route wasn't really that well-traveled. It's getting more well-traveled now. It's the Leh Manali Highway. If you ever get a chance, Patrick, put that on your bucket list. It's very cool. So it's the Is that the part. road route that you wrote about on your blog, or is that a different one? Yeah, this, it, it was definitely talked about that. It's, it's definitely in the book I wrote, too. And so it's up in the Kashmir region near the Pakistan border. And so I concocted this route to ride from Leh in the north, probably, I don't know how many miles it is, 500, 700 miles. I don't, I've never really tracked miles. I don't have a Strava account. So I don't, I don't know how many miles I've ridden, but down to this town of Manali from there, I was going to cut in and across over to Nepal, cycle the Annapurna circuit, which is historically a hiking track, but you can, if you've got a mountain bike, you can hike a bike up and over some stuff and ride a lot of the trail, which if you're into hike a bike, it's a cool place to go. And from there, I was going to end up in Kathmandu. And this would have been a period of maybe like six weeks from the time I went from India into Kathmandu, Nepal. I thought, okay, that is definitely enough time. I'm heading home. And while I'm in Kathmandu, I meet this couple. I find out they're from Switzerland. They're also bikepacking. And so we have dinner together. We hit it off. We're fast friends. Start sharing stories. And they say, hey, so what are you doing next week? And I thought, well, I'm probably heading back to Colorado. And they said, why? I said, well, I've been gone for nearly two months. They said, we've been on the road for two years. I'm like, what? How is that possible? And so they asked me, okay, so besides the fact you've been gone for, call it, two months, why are you going back? I said, I don't know what you mean. Are you married? Like, no. Do you have kids? No. Do you have a job? No. Do you have a dog? Like, no. Let me ask you again, why are you going <laughs> back? I said, I don't know. What do you have in mind? They said, we're going to keep riding through Nepal into Northeast India and then over through Thailand and into China and Eastern Tibet. Do you want to come with us? I thought, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? I've known you guys for an hour and a half. Like, this will probably <laughs> be great, right? Like, worst case, we don't go at the same speed. You don't think I'm funny. You don't get my sense of humor. Like, we just peel off and go our separate ways. So we end up taking off together and we're together every day for like the next six months. Wow. Yeah, as doors keep opening, sliding doors, you keep stepping through and just these opportunities keep presenting themselves. And that's, that's what I talk about, like this gift of time. Like I realize most people don't have that opportunity, but I did for this one little flicker sliver in my life. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this and just see what happens and see what changes evolve inside me. That's wild. So we talked about <clears throat> getting over the fear of the unknown, right? Sure. Um, that that can be one of the biggest challenges is just kind of going out into a big wide world with just your bike, whenever strapped onto it, and and overcoming that barrier. I have to assume it sounds like yeah, type A personality. You want to plan. You want things to be <laughs> set in stone. Yeah. How how much of what you were doing was planned? How much of it was just like you flying by the seat of your pants? 
So the route from Leh to Manali and then Annapurna Circuit and then into Kathmandu was absolutely planned. So I, I took out my my app on my phone and I just plotted little points along the way. I said, okay, I can make it to here today. This is this next village is 40 miles away, 50 miles away, whatever it was. Like, okay, I can make it there. And then the extent of my planning was Kathmandu. And then from that, I had no planning. I put 100% of my trust in these two people that I had met for only an hour and a half. And I mm-hmm. thought, okay, you guys have this route planned. I don't know anything about Eastern Nepal, Northeast India, China, Eastern Tibet. I know nothing. So I'm going to trust you guys and hope for the best and know that if something goes wrong, I'll get out of this. I'll be fine. I'll turn around. I'll hop a bus. I'll pedal a different direction. But to give up complete control like that, like, man, I told you, like, I am a control freak. Like, I am, <laughs> I am the king of control town, and I just gave it all away. And yeah. it's like, you know what? Throw up my hands, let the cards fall where they may, and see what happens. And it was incredible. At least, uh, at least somebody had a plan. <laughs> <laughs> somebody had a plan. These guys were super diligent. So they would look at satellite images, the routes they would plan or up and over these these passes where they didn't really see roads, but they would see like a like a goat path or a trekking path. Like, yeah, I think we can hike a bike up over this ridge for six hours. And I think I see a connection trail on the backside. Like, okay, cool. Let's try that. And like, wow. in what world would old Jerry have thought like, yeah, there's no road there. I'm just going to go hike off into the abyss with my whatever, 70 pound loaded surly steel frame bike and just hope for the best. But as you sort yeah. of let go of that fear, you realize that, man, I've got a tent. I've got food. I've got stove. I have a sleepy bag. I'm going to be fine. People live out here somewhere. Like we'll find water. We'll find food. We'll get through this. Yeah. So were were they, I mean, they had a general route in mind, but yeah. then it was what every night you would get to camp or get to wherever <laughs> and then kind of plan the next day. Is that how you would figure yeah. it out? Yeah. So they would probably plan like three or four days in advance. We'd sit around and talk about it because they would, they would pour over Google Maps, the two of them, and they would say, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? I was like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds incredible. And let's give it a shot because I, I didn't have the, the knowledge, the, the, the experience to do what they were doing. Everything I planned was I, I learned from blog posts, from reading things online, talking to people. And they were just like, yeah, let's, let's see what's over that next hill. And that's what really connected me to them because I have this, this natural innate curiosity. So my dad is a, he's a former, Korean war veteran. So I grew up in this very regimented structured household where in the military, from what I understand and seen from movies and heard from him, you never question authority. But me, I was always this authority questioner. And so there's this movie I watched as a kid called Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman. And he's always just questioning authority, kind of just toeing the line. And finally he gets caught, he goes to jail and the warden in his prison keeps saying to Cool Hand Luke, Paul Newman, it's like, what we have here is failure to communicate. So my dad would say that to me all the time because every time he would say something, I'd be like, but why? And I don't know, you're a dad. So I'm sure if your kids ever said why, you're like, well, 
because because I'm the dad and I've got the I have the brain and experience and this is this is how it is. At least that's how my dad was. Yeah, that's why I tell him I say I have a fully developed brain and 43 years of experience that's informing <laughs> yeah. my decision. What do you have? <laughs> right, exactly. What what, what what cards are you holding? Yeah, and what do you bring so, to the table? <laughs> and, and so I was always just curious, like why can't I do this? What's over that hill? What's around that corner? What happens if I do this? And these guys had that same innate curiosity like hey let's go see what's over that ridge up there i'm like yes let's go see what's up there if it takes us dragging our bikes over this hill for six hours to find ourselves in this crazy remote abandoned valley like cool i am all in for that so how did that shake out for you with your type a personality how well did you adapt to that lifestyle (laughs) what were maybe some of the highs and lows of kind of just flying by the seat of somebody else's pants Man, when you when you put all your trust and all your confidence in somebody, you have to check your own ego, your own type A at the door because now I'm working with this committee of three. And granted, I still get a vote and I get an input, but I'm one of three and they're they're pretty much a collective. And so how it changed me, man, it's just kind of relaxing your grip and learning to go with the flow. So I think that's just a good life lesson, right? We have this tightly round mindset mentality that I'm going to control everything, right? So everything's going to happen the way that I want it. And as we all know, especially as we get later in life, that we can't control stuff, right? So we're going to have to just let the cards fall where they may, realize that honestly, things are going to work out. So I came across this, another quote. Sorry, I'm a big quote dude. I grew up watching movies in Michigan because that's all there was to do in the (laughs) wintertime. And there was a quote, I don't remember where it came from, but it simply says, frame every so-called disaster with, will this matter in five months or five years? And some things will be very impactful and consequential. But for the most part, the things that really knock us off off our access onto our heels every day or every week, they're pretty minuscule. And once you can take a step back and see the larger scope perspective, you realize it's it's not that big of a deal. It's kind of like when you're looking at your offline GPS routing map and you're, you zoom way in and you see this really nasty climb coming, but then you zoom way out at like the, yeah, the 10 mile or the 20 mile radius and you think like, ah, it's but a blip. And so yeah. it's kind of that way of sort of just sort of scaling yourself back and just seeing the the larger game here, the larger perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Zoom out. It makes a big difference. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you were um, initially heading out on on this bike tour to Africa, you, that's where you started, right? Africa? Yeah, in Zambia. Um, what were your... I mean, you you had a bunch of hardships right before you left. What was your goal? What were you trying to get out of that experience when you first went into it? Just a reset, man. Like I just, I needed to take a step back. So loss of my partner, breakup of her with her for after four years, loss of my friend to breast cancer. And then honestly, the the company, it it was, it was a bit of a, of a difficult situation, right? So we just realized that, all the good that we were doing, my mom wanted to retire, but at the same time, things were still, it's still challenging, right? Work with my mom and her husband. So the three of us were partners and it just became really taxing. It wasn't anyone's fault. No one's right or wrong. It just became, it just became a challenge. So all these three things. Running a business is hard. It doesn't matter what kind of business it is. Like running a business is a lot of work. 
It is. And so my, my mom, you know, I'm, I'm her son. He's my stepfather. He's been in, in all of our lives for 30 plus years. And so we all know each other. And my mom, bless her heart, she wanted this to be this family interaction. And I just had a different approach. Like, okay, you're my mom. But at the same time, this is still a business. We've got 50 employees. We've got 60 volunteers. We're taking care of people in, in very important points in their life. And sometimes we need to be a little bit more objective, a little more business focused. And it's not to say that I was right and she was wrong. It was just a different approach to kind of getting to the same end. So at some point, like these these three factors with uh, the organization, with the death of my friend, separation of my partner, it's like, whew, like that was, it was a lot. Like any one of those things, one at a time, you can kind of bounce off from, right? But three of them within two or three months, it just became a lot. And so I just needed to to check out for two weeks to just go ride my bike go through whatever mental checklist I have, try to sort things out, thinking, could I have done something different? If so, would the results have been different? And ultimately, like so many things in life, like I'm a guy who doesn't believe in regrets. So I will I will stay in things longer than I probably should. I will go the extra mile so that I can hopefully look back in retrospect and say, man, I did everything that I can, no regrets. And I can look back with those three things in confidence and say like, you know what? I did everything that I could. And while I'm sure I played a factor in these things, like it happens, that's life and you got to move on. And I had that time on my bike in, in Africa to detach from anything familiar, right? So the house I was living in with my partner, the places we used to go, the restaurants, the office space we used to have with our company, all these things, like they were all detached. They were whatever, 8,000 miles away in a different continent. So it was completely a reset. I recently uh, became more interested in, in international travel. I got my passport like six months ago uh, yeah, for man. the first time in my life. And um, I went to Latin America in December and headed to Costa Rica here in May. And um, it, it's been a real good shift for me to kind of uh, get greater perspective for, you know, America and how that sets in the world and different cultures and stuff. And my experience is quite limited uh, still, but that that trip to Latin America was was really impactful on me and having that that perspective on how different people live in the different cultures. And I'm curious for you, how traveling, uh, what did you learn? What did you learn about yourself or what did you learn about this world that we live in that you didn't expect and kind of, yeah, sliding doors. It's like, what what came at you that you just, you're like, whoa, that blows my mind. I had no idea I was going to run into that or learn that. Yeah, the the single biggest takeaway from this is that no matter what country I've been to, whether it was Kyrgyzstan or Morocco or Turkey or along the border in Israel between Syria, Israel, Lebanon, where I can literally reach out and touch the border wall the same way you can touch the wall behind you where there's armored up Humvees. Exactly. That's the border wall into Syria and there's armored up Humvees. There's tanks, there's guys in camo gear, shouldering an automatic machine gun and people are walking around like it's no big deal, man. That's just life. People wouldn't look at the guy with machine gun any differently than you and I would look at 
the guy on the train or the bus carrying a briefcase going to work. Like that was just life. So the biggest takeaway is that ultimately people are just people, man. People want to be happy. They want to thrive. They've got their own goals, their own happiness, um, their own happiness that they're trying to achieve. And as much as we see on the news, like, ah, it's those people over there. It's crazy. It's not, man. The, the, in my opinion, it's it's the governments that are crazy that make people crazy. But for the most part, people are just people. Like my dad, again, is a Korean War veteran. I've cycled through Vietnam twice near the China border. I remember the first time I went there was 2007, and I was whatever 33 years old at the time. My dad begged me not to go. He's like, "Don't go there. There was a war there, and they don't like us over there." And it's just him being this this. Korean War veteran having this mindset of obviously it doesn't make him wrong. He's definitely got some very real experiences that have shaped his perspectives. Sure. And I went there and honestly, people were warm. They were welcoming. They were curious. They were generous. And every country that I've been to, I've experienced the exact same things. People ask me, were you ever afraid in this place in Israel or in Africa or in Vietnam? And the answer is, without even thinking, no, there wasn't a half a second of any minute of any day that I ever thought, holy crap, this could be dangerous for my life. I have been more afraid in big cities in the United States than I have been in any place I've been outside the United States. And I'm not, I don't want that to come across as like the United States is a terrible place, but rather the rest of the world, like they're just people, man. They yeah. just, they're trying to get by, trying to make a life for themselves and they're just curious and it's, it's yeah. an amazing experience. <clears throat> yeah. That's really interesting. And I think an important perspective, like I think that is, we're all subject to it. What we see in the news, right? That's how we're getting a lot of our perspectives of what's going on in other cultures through news media. And, uh, we all know that news media is designed to be sensational, to get you to have more time and attention and comment and like, and share it and all this stuff. And so you are seeing an amplified perspective of usually the negative things, uh, in, in, in media, unfortunately. And so I think that that's a really, really valuable and important perspective to have, but I do want to push back a little bit, uh, just, just, well, not, not too hard, just a little push. Uh, so really no, no safety concerns. No. Cause I mean, I'm not even saying this about traveling abroad. Like I think you're, I, you know, I'll go ride in Texas and find, you know, you know, every once in a while something will happen and be like, I almost got hit last night. Actually, I went on a ride and ah. a lady, I'm pretty sure she tried to hit me with her car. Cause I was looking at her in her eyes and she was looking at me in my eyes and Ugh. she almost T-boned me. Like she was stopped and then like lunged forward and I had to dodge her. And, you know, I mean, my point is, is like, you're going to come in across safety issues and things happen everywhere. So I'm surprised a little bit that you didn't have any, <laughs> any issues. So there, there was one occasion now that you're bringing up and thanks for pushing back on me. All right, so you're welcome. I, would, <laughs> I was up in this, uh, so the, there was kind of like this weird dichotomy, right? Of like, this is incredible. And then, holy crap, this is crazy. So I was, I was up in Israel in what's called the Golan Heights. It's, I was right along the border of Lebanon. Again, border wall right there. And I was filthy, grimy, just haven't had a shower in a couple of days. And I remember that there's this, there's this Facebook group called Bikepacking Israel. 
And it's it's like any other Facebook group. It's like a message board where you can communicate with people. So I threw a post out there and I said, hey, this is Jerry. I'm from the US. I'm going to be traveling up in the Golan Heights and would love to get together, meet some people, have a tea, whatever. Tell me about some things that I shouldn't miss, places I should go see. Also where I can camp because camping up here in a military zone, it's kind of frowned upon. Actually, it's not allowed. So I remember I roll into this town. It's called Matula. And I walk into this cafe. I'm just going to fill up my water bottles, maybe get a snack. And I walk in. Before I say anything, the guy behind the counter kind of cocks his head and looks at me. He says, are you Jerry? I thought, what? Like, this is weird. Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, what kind of game is this? So I'm like, yeah, man, I'm Jerry. Uh, He's like, hold on a second. And he reaches into his pocket, grabs his phone, dials up his number, hands me the the phone. I start talking to the guy. He's like, hey, is this Jerry? I was like, okay, what's the game here, man? And he's like, hey, are you looking for a place to sleep tonight? I was like, actually, I am. There's no place to camp up here. And so I've had a really hard time. He's like, don't worry about it. He said, give me your phone number. I'm going to drop a pin on your phone. Follow it to my house. I'm not home, but my neighbor will let you in. Stay as long as you want. I'm out of town. I'll be back in a week. If you're there, great. It'd be awesome to meet you. If not, safe travels. So here I am in this highly contentious region and some guy who I've never met gave me the key to his house and said, stay as long as you want, help yourself to the food in my fridge. And oh, by the way, do you need the Wi-Fi password? Like, yeah, man, I'll take that too. And so that's this situation. And then as I roll out of there the next day, I I plotted a, a sort of a route that goes up into Lebanon and naive me didn't realize I couldn't cross the border because it's not an open border crossing. So the guard at the, uh, at the gate says, Hey, you have to turn around and go back the way you came. And I thought, Oh, come on, man. Like I've been riding three days, right? I don't want to turn around and flip it. And I started looking on my, my offline GPS on my phone. I was like, Hey, there's a route here. Can I go this? It kind of parallels the border. <laughs> and I remember what he said. He said, yeah, you can, but there might be snipers, but I'd probably be okay. I'm like, what? Snipers, but yeah, they'll probably be okay. And for whatever reason, I, was, I thought to myself, but he said it's okay, so I'm gonna go. So I start riding this road, and not more than an hour later, this armored up Humvee comes flying up the road towards me. It's dirt road, dirt going everywhere. I'm like, oh shit, like I am not supposed to be here. These guys are gonna arrest me. Like my brain's going like worst case scenario. As they get up by me, like they all wave to me and just keep on going. I'm like, oh dear God. Like, what am I doing here? And so that was kind of like the one moment where I was like, ah, maybe this isn't the right place to be. But as far as like being kidnapped or had things stolen, like I never had that experience. That's interesting. Do you think that um, that's that's a result of just people being people and mostly good? Or do you think that you were doing, were you doing your homework? Were you interacting with certain uh, people a certain way? Were you doing things to keep yourself safe, essentially? Yeah, like I don't I think I'm well traveled enough that I'm I'm not gonna walk through a major city with a wad of cash hanging out of my pocket. So I'm I'm savvy enough. So I, I'm sure that for someone maybe less aware, less cautious, yeah, things could happen. But I you build up an acumen over time by traveling and just sort of learning how things work. So I I think it is a, a function of people being good but also putting myself probably in good situations, right? So like I'm not stumbling home from a bar at three o'clock in the morning in Istanbul, Turkey, and just making bad decisions, right? So I'm putting myself in good situations. 
Yeah. I think that's a really important caveat to this conversation about if we're talking about safety anywhere. I mean, um, you know, my my girlfriend and I, we talk about this, how, um, you know, you, you know, my downtown area here, you can go two blocks from the downtown, you know, city center, which is fine. And you go two blocks and it's like you might could be a drive by or there could be like drug Oof. deals going on or whatever, you know, like and that's that's anywhere you go, you need to have um you need to be aware of your surroundings and also be smart about the places you're going because yeah. if you're like I know all the dangerous areas where I live, but if I go into a new town, I don't know where they are and I don't yeah. know uh you know where where the pitfalls could be and so I think uh, for me, maybe doing research before you go. And if you can't do research, daylight is great. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And, and very fair point, right? So you, you do know your surroundings. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this trip that you went on, you've done 26 con- countries, five continents. How much of that was done in that first initial trip when you left for two weeks and then you never came back? <laughs> I would say probably only about uh, one, two, three, four, maybe eight or nine of the countries wow. were in that trip. And so, from there, yeah, I came back and tried to plug back into life and then realized like, man, there's this, this part of me that just wants to wander some more. So much shorter trips, but still I wanted to get out there and see more things. I wasn't so what satiated. were you doing? You, you, you came home, you're home in Colorado, you're not satiated. And so you just start planning, like you'll do like a week or two weeks somewhere and then come back and then do it again. Like how yeah. was that? Yeah. And so just trying to figure out the, the next step in life. And so after running a hospice, being in a, in a, in a leadership role, I remember being in some interviews while I was in Thailand, while I was in China, and I met this organization up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and there was a healthcare organization up there, and they were had an opening that seemed like it would fit well within my my wheelhouse. And so I was interviewing with those guys with the time change. You know, I'd get up at three o'clock in the morning and do an interview, and then things are moving forward. And I remember coming back from uh, from my trip and doing the actual final interview. So I'd gone through several rounds, met the board of directors, met all the other uh, leadership team. And it came down to me and another internal candidates. And I remember thinking like, man, after everything that I've seen, everything that I've done, everything that I've lived, like while I initially wanted this job, the closer I got to it, the more I didn't want it. So it was, it would have been essentially a return back to to my old life. And it would have been a great opportunity, amazing role, great organization, getting to live in a mountain town like Steamboat Springs, like all dream come true. And the closer I got to getting the offer, I just realized like, man, how am I going to explain to these guys that I really want this job and now I really don't. And so did the final interview, did the best that I could, didn't didn't try to sandbag anything or try to lay an egg. And I remember I got the the phone call from their hiring team and they said, sorry, we went with the other person. And I was like, oh man, that Sweet. is such a relief. Yeah. <laughs> and so since then I've started teaching skiing, guiding bike tours, writing a book, working with warm showers and just kind of pulling together a lot of different things. So 
my my paycheck is is understandably a lot less, but my my mental state, my health, my happiness, my heart's a lot fuller. And I feel like I'm still having the opportunity to make a real impact on people's lives, which is really important to me. That's that's what drives me every day. So every day yeah. I wake up and think like, yes, I get to do this. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being able to do what you love every single day or or not even that, it's not even like do everything, do what you love every day, but um, figure out a way to do the things that you love, like figure out a job that allows you to have the experience in, in life that you want to have. Um, I, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, but like, you know, I, I, I'm personally not as concerned about money. Like money is a, a tool that we use to like, you know, buy the things that we need in life. But I'm way more <laughs> yeah. interested in this stage of my life of, you know, having experiences in my piggy bank and, and friendships in my piggy bank and, you know, and, and doing the best that I can, uh, with finances, I guess, along the way, but it's become less of a focus for me. And it's more like, okay, how can I just like make enough money to do the things that I really want to do in life, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's obviously a line, right? So I, I read somewhere like, Money doesn't matter unless you don't have any. But then <laughs> there's this there's this rule of law of diminishing returns, right? So by making at a certain point, like once you get to where you have all of your your needs met, like you've got a nice place to live, you've got food, you've got healthcare, whatever, like whatever your basic needs, once those are met, to get a 30% more money or 50% more money annually does not necessarily make you 50% happier. So there's this kind of sliding scale, this tipping point where, yeah, it's it's super stressful when you're living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, and you don't know if you'll be able to keep the lights on. And I can't imagine that feels like that's got to be horrible. But once you get to that point where you're comfortable, I seriously don't think that making exponentially more money makes you exponentially happier. There's this law of diminishing returns. It's kind of like on our bikes, right? So you can have the XTR shifter Grupo kit that costs, I don't know, $500 more, but it saves you a quarter of a pound. Like at some point, like it's just, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely diminishing returns uh, with a lot of things in life. Um, so what is, what's what's next for you are you yeah what are your goals now in life besides your your work balance and trying to you know live a more meaningful life like what does a more meaningful life look like for you at this stage I, it's a great question i feel like i'm uh i'm back at my federal reserve uh annual review like hey where do you see yourself <laughs> in five years yeah no, I, I think it's a very fair question honestly man i just i want to be a good human I want to be a good brother to my four brothers. I want to be a good son to to my parents. I want to be a good partner to to my girl. Uh, I want to be a good friend. I want to be able to show up. I want to have time when someone needs me. I can put things down. The world can stop, and I can be present for people. And I just want to continue to have a really good impact on people's lives because, again, at the end of the day, we we can't just be happy with listening to the encore of our concert. Like we want to see the whole show. So I want to try to live as big and full and amazing of a life as possible. And same point, just being a really good 
component, really good influence in people's lives. You like quotes, and so I'll share one with you. <laughs> uh, my my friend sent me an article that it's a it's a it's a whole article, but the the moral of it is this is your life. You're going to want to know how it feels. Oh, I know? like and, that. Yeah. And, and now that, that one, I mean, you could tattoo that on you, like, you know, pay attention, you know, this is your life. It's happening to you. Yeah. Um, and don't check out, man, be, be present in the good times and the bad times. Cause you're going to want to know how it feels. All right. So, uh, fun question. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, we're done with like. the hard ones. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> we're gonna shifting gears here. What's your what's your favorite uh, for other people? I mean, I'm I'm interested in touring the world. There's a whole freaking oh another quote for you. This yeah. is a good one. It's topical. Uh, the world is a book. Oh, wait, what is it? Oh fuck, I forgot it. <laughs> the The world is a book, and for those that only read one page, oh. That's what it is. The world is a book, and for those that don't travel, they only read one page. Something oh, along those lines. Yeah. I got you. I, and I, feel and I, I want to read the whole book. You know, I want to. I want to read the whole thing, beginning to end. And uh, you've yeah. seen a lot of the world. Yeah. Uh, what? Where? You know, for me and anyone else looking to do out international bike touring, uh, what would be your bucket list? What some of your highlight places that you must go to? So. I've been to India now three times and I absolutely love it. So from the organized chaos to the just absolute chaos, like it's, it's not for the faint. So I had been traveling solo until I met my Swiss friends I had never traveled with a partner until this most recent October, I got to travel with my partner. And again, she's hyper competitive, played D one hockey. She's gritty. She's strong. She's probably tougher than I am. But we went to India and within the you know the first day, two, five, ten days, whatever, she just kept saying, it's like, I shouldn't be here. Like, this is too much. Like, I'm not ready for this. Because we had done an overnighter in Breckenridge where we live. We had done this three-night trip called the Vapor Trail down in Salida, Colorado, a really cool adventurous route. And it's like, okay, we're ready for something big here. So let's go to India. And for the first two weeks, she's like, I shouldn't be here. But by the last two weeks, she's like, I don't ever want to leave. And so if you can somehow grit your way through India, it will change your life. I mean, just the landscape, the topography, the people, the smells, the colors, the food, the culture, the the curiosity, like it's incredible. But again, I wouldn't recommend going there on your first trip. Europe is 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 amazing. So my first trip was in 2005. I rode through the Pyrenees in Spain for about a week. And wasn't bike packing. I was just bike touring. So I would ride from small hotel or pension or hostel and just go day to day. And that was a really great way to break into it because the roads are smooth. There's, there's not chaos. It's, it's Europe and things are, are pretty normal. They're pretty similar to what we're used to here. But man, India is, is so far out there. But since uh, since we're allowed to cuss on your show, yep. the, the one thing that I definitely did learn is that, and I'm certain of this, is that traveling makes you less of an asshole. And here's what I mean by that. Like we get so caught up in our own sort of myopic world where everything is comfortable, everything's familiar. I know the person at the grocery store. I, I know the person at the gas station. And it's easy to get sort of pigeonholed into that lifestyle. 
But then we start thinking about, okay, those people over there, that's different, that's weird, that's scary. But you start traveling, whether it's India, whether it's Spain, whether it's anywhere in Western Europe, or to you down in Central America, like you see the whole world in this completely different perspective. And you realize that, man, we're not that different. Things really are the same. People really are just people. So that's kind of my big takeaway with uh, with international travel. I was at dinner with my mom just a couple nights ago and I was telling her about my trip to Oaxaca and um, yeah. I just made the comment. I was like, man, I could I could see myself retiring or living in, you know, Latin America at some point. Sure. And she she asked me why. And I just told her that, you know, I feel like in America we're occupying our time and our att- attention and spending our money and all these things on on things that don't truly have value. And what I what I feel like I gained whenever I went to Latin America and see the way that they they live, it's a much more intentional lifestyle. I mean, you have, you know, multi-generational families living together and taking care of each other. Like everybody's working, they're they're hanging out together. There's just a more sense of community and, and togetherness and not a lot of um, not as much like, I don't know, like fancy cars and you know, permed hair. I don't know. Like just like things that like really don't fucking matter. It's like, who has the coolest clothes? Who has the coolest car? Who has the biggest house? You know, I really liked it when everybody was a little more humble and, and, um, everybody just, I don't know. It just, it turn it turns the table or the uh, temperature down. I feel like when we're not all competing with each other for this weird unspoken social status of the things that we have and the way we look and the, uh, the car we drive and the clothes we wear, like when you remove that, you're able to operate more on like just a human level or something. I'm yeah. still wrapping my head around it, but <laughs> I I found it to be a lot more relaxing. Like a lot, I, I enjoyed it, man. We just kind of a fu- funny side tangent. Like my first introduction to Mexico was we flew in um, and then we had to drive like eight hours to this Airbnb we're staying at or six hours and we get literally a mile and a half from our Airbnb and we were on this like mountain pass road in the middle of nowhere and there was a line of cars and I mean we sat there for like an hour like no idea what was going on we don't well I don't speak Spanish she spoke Spanish a little bit um eventually we get brave enough to like walk up the line of cars to see what was going on turns out there was a protest going on and they had blocked mm. the road um peaceful protest but um it was so interesting to me because like all the locals were just hanging out. They were having a beer. Like they just parked their cars and stayed there that night and nobody was <laughs> mad. Nobody was upset. They couldn't get home or wherever they needed to go. They were just like, Oh, there's a protest. Uh, we're just going to stop here tonight. And it was totally fine. You know, and I, we were talking a lot about, you know, if that happened in America, people be ramming their cars through the barricade or calling somebody or yeah. probably getting in a gunfight or something crazy, you know? And like, but everyone yeah. there was just loud. They just turned it into a party and it was like, that was, yeah, I could share a lot of stories, but that one was a great introduction to the different like flow of life. And, you know, uh, yeah, they're, they don't take it quite as seriously. And, um, yeah, well, not that they don't take life seriously, but yeah, yeah, maybe that mean. they're better at going with the flow and, you know, things happen and they kind of just go with it, you know, maybe. 
Right. I mean, think about those experiences that, that you gain just by saying, you know what, I'm going to go see what's over here. I'm going to go check this out and those perspectives and how it's sort of changed the way maybe that you approach things. And maybe you don't get triggered quite as easily as, as, as quickly now because you've seen yeah. other people and how they handle things and like, okay, this, this is going to be okay. And you become more curious and maybe less judgmental. And at least that's for me, that's, that's the traveling benefit for me. Is that, you know, I, I went to business school. I, I realized that there's this concept of free will, right? So people want to make money and they want to buy their new Audi, buy their, their 6,000 square foot house. That's all fine, man. I am not knocking anyone. You make your money, spend it however you want. I just don't value those things. And I think that's a big paradigm shift because I was definitely on that bus, man. Like that's where I was going. And then once sort of you get, uh, get the rug yanked out from where you have some life happen. Like you go travel on a bike, you realize, what do I actually need? Okay. I've got one pair of underwear, two pair of socks, one bike kit, one shirt, one pair of pants. I'm good, man. Like I got a place to sleep tonight. I took a shower today, like simple stuff. And I just, I don't value those things anymore. Like I, I have this, this closet full of banana Republic shirts and Hugo boss pants and ties that for some reason I still have, I shouldn't, but I've had them under dry cleaners plastic for like six years now since I last <laughs> had an office job. And I've gotten rid of everything else that I haven't used in the past six months. But that stuff seems to be hanging around. But the point is, like, you realize you just don't need that stuff. And that was my biggest kind of takeaway from like, what do I really need in life? And what am I really working towards? So like, I'm I'm a terrible consumer. I just don't buy stuff. Like my tour bike... Is a 2014 Surly Karate Monkey, and it's got nice. dings and scratches and thousands of miles on it. But like everyone's like, "Hey, why don't you buy the new Titanium Custom Something Something?" I'm like, this works fine, man. We're good. All right, Natalie, this one's for you. Uh, Natalie is looking at buying a Karate Monkey. That's Ooh. that's the bike that she thinks that she needs, and I I agree. I think it's probably a great bike. But tell Natalie. Uh, <laughs> if she should buy a karate monkey or not and why uh because it's absolutely indestructible so i've ridden that thing fully loaded through some crazy rowdy goat pads in the himalayas you can also put a front shock on it which i think is helpful if you want to basically keep your teeth from falling out of your face on some really rowdy terrain so I think that is a, it's a fantastic bike. It's not the lightest bike, but as they say, steel is real. And mm -hmm. the cool thing I did with my bike is I know a guy who's a custom frame builder in Boulder, Colorado. And I said, Hey man, I've seen this bike called a Richie breakaway. And it's basically, it attaches to the top tube and also in the down tube. So it fits in a traditional standard size suitcase. So I asked him, I was like, Hey, can you cut my bike in half and install SNS couplers on it? So it travels for free in a smaller box. Like, yeah, I can do that. So those are the cool upgrades that I did. But That's overall, awesome. the Karate Monkey is, I mean, it's its tried and true. Like I have tried to break that bike, not intentionally, but definitely tried. Yeah, it, It's still here, man. Like it is a badass bike. All right. Sold. I think you just sold a Karate Monkey. I'll, <laughs> I'll report back to you and let you know how it goes down. <laughs> yeah, she'll be happy so, with it. Absolutely. Yeah, that, just for fun. So when you uh, went on this trip, uh, initially this two-week trip, I assume you weren't planning on writing a book, Definitely, but you ended didn't. up writing a book. So no, yeah, had no intention. Like I was the guy who 
didn't grow up reading books, definitely didn't grow up with this idea of writing a book. I wanted to be a professional athlete, but then I realized a five foot 10 kid from mid Michigan isn't going to play basketball. Didn't have a 90 mile an hour fastball. So I wasn't going to play baseball. Just was a business guy. And honestly, the, the book is just something that came out of writing some online stories and the stories weren't to try to gain notoriety. It was mostly because my mom and my dad, some of my friends didn't know where I was. And it was just a way for me to write some stories to tell people like, Hey, I'm here. I'm in this place you've never heard of, but life is good. I'm safe and I'm happy. And then so shortly after that, more people who were not named mom or dad said, Hey, these are pretty cool stories. Maybe it's a bigger story there. Once you come back, then I realized, honestly, I didn't think a story about some white guy in his forties riding his bike through these countries is that interesting of a story. But I thought about how do they actually get here? It was a Korean war father, Sue, who was super controlling. It was trying to follow this laminated playbook, this, this roadmap to success that Western society tells us. It was having the opportunity to run a hospice, work with people at end of life and the lessons learned from there and how all three of those things got me onto this bike tour for this, this guy. And I thought that became a much more compelling story. And so once I thought about it, I was like, okay, we'll just see what happens. And I've been fortunate. I, I, I wrote a book and people thus far have been giving me some really positive feedback. Yeah. So why don't you plug your book real quick? I mean, you kind of <laughs> did there, but, uh, you know, for, who, who is it targeted to? Who would probably enjoy picking up a copy and, and what is it called? Uh, so, so people can find it. Yeah. It's called The World Spins By and it's available on my website at www.jerrycopac.com. So there'll probably be some liner notes for that in your, in your show notes or whatever. Yeah. Show notes. We'll have a link. Absolutely. Yeah. And I thought it was just going to be targeted at guys our age, maybe a few years younger, maybe a few years older. So guys our age are sort of hitting sort of that midpoint in their career thinking like, there's got to be a better way. Maybe people in their thirties who are thinking like, I don't want to go down that road. And people maybe in their fifties, sixties thinking like, Hey, I still have a time to do something different. But honestly, it's been a completely different perspective. So it's still been that demographic, but it's not just men. It's just not people of that certain age. I've had great feedback with people, men, women of all ages. And I didn't realize the, the importance of this book until I was talking about this book to somebody. And this woman, she was probably 40 years old, had overheard me talking about this with some friends. And she came up and she's like, tell me about your book. And I said, well, it's essentially, it's a book about the value of time and how we choose to spend it. And we got more into it and her eyes started to well up and she gave me a big hug. And she told me, I think I was meant to meet you today. And that right there, like just makes me want to cry right now because she had just lost somebody recently who was very important in her life. And we talked for a while, like I cried, she cried. And I don't want you to think like it's this big sappy book, but there is a deeper underlying thread. It's just not some guy writing his book. Like there's, there's some meaning to this. And to hear that feedback from a complete stranger, let me think like, okay, I am really happy that I wrote this book and fortunate that I had this opportunity to share with her and other people who have read it. Yeah. I love that. You know, I think, um, 
no matter what how you spend your time i mean for you and and for me uh we we like to ride our bikes and like to see the world by by the bike but the overarching uh question or the idea that time is valuable it's limited and it's precious and and being mindful of it and being a good steward of it is something that is worth considering in everybody's daily life how do you want to spend your time? How can you maximize the time that you have and, and what are you going to spend it on? And yeah, I think most of the people, since this is bikes or death, are going to be wanting to <laughs> go ride bikes. But yeah. the, un- the underlying principle of, of maximizing your time, I think, is universal to anyone in life, you know? Yeah, it is. I mean, that that's such a good point. Like this like I know our audience here. I love your show. We talk about bikes and how cool they are and doing these adventures. But think about the experiences that you gain, right? So some people love endurance bike racing. Some people love doing the Colorado, Tri- Colorado Trail or the Great Divide or even the Silk Road Race in Kyrgyzstan. Like those are all awesome things. But honestly, whatever you do that that makes you feel alive, that makes you feel like, hey, life is awesome whether it's doing a race, whether it's just going out for an overnight tour. For me, it's just, man, I, I have this mindset that bikes always win. And what I mean by that is, is you know, you can you can hop on a bus, you can get in a car, you can get from A to B, you can get to that place, you can drive to the Grand Canyon, you can go to the Taj Mahal in India, you can go to the Louvre in Paris. But man, if you get on your bike it's all those people you meet along the way. It's those small villages. It's those interactions. It's those, those human experiences. That's the real color, the true beauty of the story, because you'll still get to where you're going. You'll still see all that stuff, but man, it's all the stuff along the way. That's so incredible. That makes it worthwhile. Perfect. Let's, uh, we can tie a bow on this episode and end right there. Uh, (laughs) bikes, bikes always win. That, that is the right answer. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it, man. Um, I, I I usually like to read books before I ever have before I have the guest on the author on. Um, in your case, I'm gonna have to go go back and read it. Uh, do you have a audio version? I don't, and so I was hoping, like I don't know, Patrick Stewart, you know, the guy from uh, Star Trek. I thought he would make a nice sort of voiceover, yeah. very uh, very well polished British accent, but I don't yet. So I'm still working yeah. on that. Well, if you want another Patrick to do it, let me know. I'm not, I'm no Patrick Stewart, but I'm, uh, I'm doing, uh, Hal Russell's, uh, book. I'm recording his book in an audio version. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with it. Um, you touch are? both okay. lines. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something I've wanted to get into is like reading audio books as, uh, I don't know. It's just, I love audio books. I love books. And I think like I told Hal Russell's family, um, you know, a, a lot of people like they listen to my podcast while they're on bike trips, while they're, you know, doing yeah. some, they might be driving their car to a bike trip or they might be on a bike trip or whatever. Um, but I always think that these uh, travel ones are are good to have an audio version of. But anyway, that's my I own agree. plug. Uh, and you could, you <laughs> could record, you could record it yourself because you got the microphone. It's just the, it's just the time. But uh, I could introduce you to an editor if you need an editor. Uh, oh, I like this. To, I like where this is going. Yeah, yeah. Worth considering, you know? Absolutely. I like I like a good audio version. It depends on what I'm doing. I'm uh I'm doing an ITT of a 400-mile route, my own route uh, and race that I do here in Texas next week. 
I guess in, no, this week. Oh shit, it's like in four days. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna listen to the Lonesome Dove. That's that okay. one's come highly recommended to me. So that's the one I'm gonna go with this time. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been uh, fun chatting, and it's hard to wrap up 26 countries in an hour and a half. But I, you know, we touched on a lot of stuff, and yeah. we gave people just the tip, the tip of the iceberg. Let's be clear, yeah. just the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> and. If you want to know the rest, check my show notes and you can pick up his book and uh, learn more about Jerry's expletives or expeditions. (laughs) (laughs) There's a few, I won't lie, there's a few expletives in there in the book because sometimes, like as you mentioned, when it's raining sideways at 38 degrees, like you'll drop some expletives. Yeah. It happens. Curse words are great. I think, I think they do have their place and value the right time. I, I I can overuse them sometimes, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, Another conversation. We have a rule uh, with my partner and I like uh, no F bombs before 9am in the morning. Cause it's it's a little bit too jarring, but (laughs) it's a little too harsh. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's, 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 it's free. You can, you can drop them just not not first thing in the morning. Maybe after that first cup of coffee, you can be like, fuck, that was good. And then get on with your (laughs) (laughs) absolutely that seems a little more reasonable all right jerry right on man i appreciate it i appreciate the time and the chat it's it's good uh good meeting you on the internet yeah man and if you ever find yourself rolling through breckenridge there's a guest room with your name on it i'll take you i i want to go up there and uh chat with doozer uh we've talked about doing another episode and getting back up to colorado i've got yeah got quite a few interviews i'd like to knock out uh next time i can find my way up to colorado so I'll, i'll holler at you man Three of us will get together. He's a friend of mine. He's a good dude. So we'll all yeah, go and do to. some adventuring together. That's what I'm about, man. Let's ride some bikes. Yeah, man. All right. Later. All right. All right. Peace out. All righty, friends. Well, that is it for today's episode. I appreciate Jerry coming on and sharing his story today with us. And I appreciate him having a professional microphone so we could get a good audio quality on both sides. That's always nice. All right, well, I've got a lot to do to get ready to get out on this ITT for the East Texas Showdown, so I'm going to make this short and sweet. You can follow me online starting Friday morning. I think we're going to roll out at 8 a.m., and actually, my editor, Ben Crannell, is going to be joining me. That's kind of a funny story that we might share on the podcast, or I might share on the podcast. Maybe I'll get him to hop on and uh, share how it happened. But in a funny turn of events, uh, Ben is going to be doing an, an ITT with me starting Friday morning. So we're going to post a link on social media. You can follow along. And until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. Oh, 